Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. Hey, Joe. I am here. Hello. We had such a great interview this week. I'm really, it was kind of my fantasy conversation, our fantasy conversation. You and I talk about this a lot. We have two reporters, Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny. Every time I say her name, I trip up because I'm just so excited to hear from them. They are two incredible reporters from NBC News who cover disinformation, conspiracy theories, all things internet, uh, all things sort of at the center of every news story, of every political plot, media tale. Uh, Their reporting was actually cited in the impeachment hearings this week. Unfortunately, I saw that they were brought up right after we finished recording. So I couldn't quite ask them about it. But you really understand just how at the center of, of all of this they are. And I'm just blown away by their knowledge and how they approach this subject that seems, you know, it's it's so online, but they appro- approach it with such humanity. And we get to that in the interview. And, and I think that's what makes them great reporters is they obviously see the 30,000 foot view of what's happening, but they're so in there with these people that they really explain, you know, obviously how this all started and why this all started, but really that this is, these are human beings who just want to believe in something and that that's why it's so pervasive and that's why it's so hard to stop because it's not like, okay, well, you can just talk rationally and say, obviously there's no ring run out of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. These are people who have been indoctrinated. It's like religion. It just happened to be that instead of going to church Every Sunday, these people are in their living rooms 24 hours a day reading this stuff online. And it's so powerful and so moving. And I'm so glad that they were brought up in the impeachment hearings, which I know you've been watching all week. Yes, for educational and news purposes. But uh, it's been a personal experience of just agony watching it. You know, right. as I think it was meant to be and is, and you wish was also the case for some of the senators sitting there watching it, who some of who are pretending not to watch it or trying not to watch it because they don't want to cope with it. But all this disinformation and, and conspiracies and the QAnon thing you're talking about, it's now in the halls of government. It's not just out there with, their, with the constituents. It is now like a virus that's inside 
our institutions, right? Which we ordinarily think of as the places of reason, <laughs> morality, justice, the things that we want to believe are, uh, you know, the hallmarks of our American democracy. But we think of it as just a, a thing that's and, you know, I've interviewed a couple of weeks ago somebody who was a cult deprogrammer and talking about ways in which we can, uh, you know, undo the damage done to people we know in our lives. But it's not just those people. It's it's these people exploiting it that we're watching right on TV. It's true. And and they made this point over and over again when when I talked to them and you'll hear it in the interview that it's been such a feedback loop from the person and the people at the top. It's not that, that, you know, these theories got to the people at the top and that they use them for their political game. A lot of these things started from the people at the top that they, people heard about them for the first time from the president, from Congress people. And so obviously they existed long before former president Trump uttered them out of his mouth. He didn't just invent them. He knew that they, they came from the internet, but he gave them a, a gigantic platform for four years and so many more people who wouldn't have heard about them, who don't know what 4chan is, who aren't watching these videos on YouTube, uh, they were brought into the mainstream by the very people in those halls. And that's mm-hmm. that's what we're dealing with now. And nightly on Fox News, on Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, exactly it right. goes on and on. That's and exactly But right. the, the thing that really, you know... This isn't something we're looking back on and trying to do postmortem. It's actively being defended. You know, the outcome of it, the coup, the January 6th coup, the violence, the killings, the murder of people, police officers, were a direct result of all of this. And now we have politicians. This is what was making me ill this week watching this. I mean, watching these videos was very difficult, of course. But knowing that there are sitting U.S. senators who are going to go to the mat to defend against rectifying this problem of this misinformation and the results of you know, what it did, the outcome. And there's going to be more outcomes if there is not some kind of lid put on this thing, right? There's going to be further violence. There's going to be further you know, crazy people unleashed and advocated for and – represented by people who are sympathetic to them. I, it's just, you know, I could really go off on this and I'm going to try to restrain myself, but it really is a heart, it made, it's made me heart sick. Can I give you a silver lining? I'm going to take your usual position. I'm going to give you the sunny side of the street today. <laughs> okay, good. I need it. I think that Democrats have done a remarkably good job. I think they have been Absolutely effective in a few ways. I think that they have made this completely not a partisan thing in in as best of a a way that they could, um, which I think was not always the way this is going to go. So I think that they have managed to rein it in and have been very disciplined in their messaging. And I think the thing that struck me most yesterday was how effective their strategy of really breaking down the timeline of events and also showing exactly the proximity that all the senators were into the insurrectionists. And, you know, that building, that complex is so complex and it is a labyrinth and it was built 
a million years ago and it's gigantic and it's it's really hard even for people. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have visited the Capitol. I'm sure a lot of them haven't. Um, but even for those who visited, I've spent a, a good amount of time there. I literally have no idea where, where I am at any point when I'm there. Yeah. And right. like, I couldn't quite understand that the doors that they went through were the doors that the president goes through for the state of the union. Like I didn't have that context. I didn't have the context of how close in a certain corridor they were to the hallway that Chuck Schumer was going down, that they were yards away from him. And so setting up those maps, setting up that very detailed timeline and then interspersing it with the video footage that many of us hadn't seen before really Obviously, for viewers, it really set the stage of how terrifying it was. But to be a senator, to have that in such an effective way splayed out for you, I would imagine if there are any minds to change in that room, that's the way to change them. And so I think it was a very, just a really well done argument. And I I just think it was really informationally useful. I don't think. It was like an x-ray of the entire event. It showed you every portion of it. And there were new, there was new material. The video of Mitt Romney running down the hallway was like, I mean, it was like something out of a movie. It was yes. like a, a um, horrifying. And yes, I think that to the degree that they are marshalling all of the facts and the data to change hearts and minds about how to view this, they've done everything they can. Sure. They really, I mean, short of, let me say, short of um, calling witnesses and bringing people in to have some testimony, which I would love to see because there are lots of people that could be called and especially on the subject of Trump himself watching this on TV and still pushing to have the election overturned almost as if, not just as if, actually allowing the pressure of what people were seeing on TV to act as a lever, Yeah. right? Which is the definition of having been involved directly with a coup. And uh, so, you know, outside of the Capitol and invading the Capitol were all these people suffering from a form of disinformation mental illness. (laughs) And that's what these two guests that you've brought on today are going to talk about and what they're going to bring us into so that we can understand it better. And I'm going to try to – I'm going (laughs) to look to you for my optimistic – uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel today, and I need it. And thank you. How the tables have turned. Let's get to the interview. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. 
Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hive. We are so lucky to have Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny here today, the crack team of disinformation reporters at NBC News. I can't think of two better people to talk about, probably the most important beat of the moment. Guys, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We're really excited to be here. Thank you, Emma. Well, I have like 7 million questions for you. I told you this before we started. You are at the center of everything. What you cover, disinformation, conspiracy theories, life online, is at the heart of politics right now. It is at the heart of media. It's at the heart of big business, of of big tech. And those are all the things that really govern every conversation and really the way we're living right now. But before we dive into that, and we have so much to dive into there, I want to hear from both of you guys how you guys started to cover this. This is not something that everyone and their mother is paying so much attention to, though I think that will change. And I wonder how you chart your own paths to what you cover today and how that relates to how disinformation in general shifted to something that was on the fringes in in society to something that two key reporters at NBC News would spend their their whole jobs covering. So I'm I'm a librarian by trade. I used to be a librarian in college and school libraries. And and then I started deciding that I loved the news and they had these things called news libraries. So I quickly got a job at uh, ABC News and then Fox News, (laughs) if you can believe it. And, um, and then when I decided I wanted to start reporting and writing myself, I um, got a job at the Daily Beast. And it was Newsweek in the Daily Beast then. And basically, I was a new reporter. And if you wanted to get a story on the page, you basically had to have a beat that nobody else wanted Mm. and no one else was looking at. So I thought, okay, I will basically dive into the tunnels of the internet and try to find a story that nobody's told. So I started finding these like really niche internet culture stories. My first story ever was um, about Christian domestic discipline, which is basically BDSM for Jesus people. And and I I need to dig this up. Yeah, I mean, I think it was called Spanking for Jesus, which is a great headline. But Bless um, you for that. But it was great and it was weird and it told a story, you know, uh, about this really fringe community and um, I was just super hooked. So from there, I just sort of dove into the internet and what I quickly found was that not 
all of these stories were so fun because the internet can be a great place, but it can also be a place where people try to destroy everything. And I started covering the men's rights movement and the manosphere and pickup artists. And so from there, I met people like Mike Cernovich, right, who was a pickup artist slash supplement salesman. He wrote this something about a gorilla. (laughs) And and so slowly I began covering all these like tiny communities. And then what happened in 2016 was, you know, post Gamergate, these small hateful communities became politically important. Um, They became serial misinformers like, you know, Mike Cernovich, for example, is one of the um, most prolific disinformation agents we have. Same thing, Jack Posobiec, these sort of people became important. So that's sort of how I came to be here. Yeah, I I sort of took a similar path. Um, I was at the Daily Beast, I was senior editor, and I was covering sort of how the internet was impacting the world. And at first, I also thought it was very funny. You know, for example, I did this story about these two guys in Dayton, Ohio. This was back in, I believe, 2015. And they had convinced people in their town that Limp Biscuit was going to play a free concert on 420 at the Sunoco station. And they put up a Facebook event. And it was, this was a joke among friends and among like scene kids in Dayton. And it blew up. It went everywhere. Because at that point, people didn't really understand that if you had a Facebook event and it was getting recommended to people through other Facebook events, that eventually like people might think it was real. It was very funny. People were showing up to the to the Sunoco station looking for Limp Biscuit. Like there, it was like a it was a massive, uh, wild uh, example of what was to come in the next year and a half in terms of politics there. Um, but my beat started to change in sort of gravity in September of 2015. Uh, my friend, his name is Chris Hurst. His girlfriend was uh, Allison Parker, and she was shot and killed on live TV. She was a uh, local reporter in Roanoke, Virginia, and she was doing a stand-up at an amusement park. You might remember this. Of course. And it was, yeah. Um, and a disgruntled employee live-streamed her murder on live TV. And um, for the next couple of days, I tried to figure out, you know, what was going on with him, how he was doing. And I couldn't because the top things you would see on Google and YouTube were lies. They said he was a crisis actor. He didn't really exist. All these things, all these terms that we now know. I remember going into the Daily Beast pitch meeting just like Brandy would do. And, uh, and I asked, does anybody here know what a crisis actor is? And nobody knew. This was five years ago or six years ago. So this is how fast things have evolved. Um, so I, what I did was I, I called those people. I called the people making videos about him saying like, you know, I, I would talk to them on the phone for 45 minutes and have them, you know, they would, they would explain to me how Chris didn't exist, that he really lived on an island and then Allison worked for the CIA. And I would let them talk. And at the end I would say, uh, just so you know, I know Chris, and if he's a CIA agent, he's the shittiest CIA agent in American <laughs> history. Um, he was he's really bad at fantasy baseball. Like, I can tell you right now, he's terrible at this. Um, uh, and, you know, at the end, they would say, um, well, I'm sorry if that's true, but this is just what I believe. And uh, I realized that we were in for a rough ride. Uh, and those, those people took power for, you know, the next few years. Those people... As you can see now, um, the influencers in that space, the people who pushed the largest lies, wound up being some of the most prominent figures in American politics. It's so true, and that you both touched on uh, both the the turn towards 
darker from something that was sort of like a fun, at least to us, seeming joke to something that was not only incredibly dark and heavy, but also very politically consequential. But that you both touch on this sort of being all about belief is what is elemental here. And what I think makes this so dangerous is that people since the dawn of time have wanted to believe in things, right? And they haven't been things that were necessarily rooted in reality, but things that either help explain the unexplainable to them or made them feel better or gave them hope or whatever it is. And it just so happens that I think people are wildly susceptible for a number of reasons that I want to ask you about, but everything feels like the weight and gravity is so daunting and large and scary. You you talked about yeah. the the influencers and uh, the, the key people who are really shaping politics today. And I think probably the most recognizable name, especially in the last year, is, is Q, QAnon. Is that right? <laughs> probably true. Yeah, that's probably the case. Can we just do a primer on, on these major influencers? Just a quick little primer on who the major players are and how they sort of rose to prominence and and why we should care about them. Brandy, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So this is a a rapidly expanding and now probably contracting space. Um, But there are there are lots of influencers. I mean, when we think about disinformation, I would say, you know, for four years, the biggest piece of the disinformation Um, ecosystem was Donald Trump himself, right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump would say something that was categorically untrue, whether it was about, you know, a a COVID cure or about mail-in ballots. And then he would he would start a, a sort of cycle, a feedback loop where he would have digital soldiers create content for him, which spread that lie further and in different ways. And then it would go through all of the normal pipeline, whether, you know, right wing blogs like Gateway Pundit, and then, you know, you'd see it in talk radio and Fox News, and and then back through Donald Trump's lips. And he would say, see, look at all, what all these people are saying. So for a long time, he was the largest. He's lost that sort of megaphone now. He's no longer president. He's lost that. Um, and he's also lost his um, Twitter and Facebook accounts. So he's gone. What you still have are all of his digital soldiers, which are um, some, in, you know, have greater megaphones than others. I would say Gateway Pundit is a huge um, influencer in the disinformation space. You know, he, uh, Jim Hoft has pushed uh, for years and years some of the just most harmful lies mm-hmm. uh, about everything from, you know, elections to uh, democratic members uh, of democratic politicians. So he recently, I think, was the main push behind um, the lie about uh, election interference and, and uh, election tampering in Georgia. Part of that was what caused Donald Trump to mention uh, this woman, Ruby Freeman, who was a nice, seemingly election worker. She had like a kiosk in the mall where she sold like vintage purses and stuff. She seemed like a nice lady, but um, that started a sort of harassment campaign against her. And then after Jim Hoft, you have people like Jack Posobiec, who is uh, at the news network OANN. You um, have lesser people like Ali Alexander, who was a you know friend 
of um, Jacob Wall and went and and Laura Loomer and was behind a lot of the stop the steal momentum that we saw. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on because this ecosystem is so large. And then I think, you know, beyond that, like sort of MAGA wannabe influencer sphere, I think you have a whole nother influencer sphere, which is harder to sort of say top down because their power is really in the movement itself. And, and that's QAnon. So maybe Ben wants to talk about that. Yeah, you know, I, I think you can break it down in three different sects, right? Where, you know, there's the political operatives that, that Brandy was talking about. These are these are people traditionally linked to traditional political power. Um, the Jack Posobiec and Gateway Pundit kind of people who are trying to push narratives to make you fear immigrants, to, um, to hearken back to traditional GOP talking points. But then there are these other sections now. There are militias, which are uh, growing on places like Telegram because they grow they, they grew so substantially on Facebook through the recommendations algorithm for the last few years. That's not really allowed anymore, but from 2016 to 2020, it was a big part of how militias grew. You know, they took advantage of gun communities. You know, they, they took advantage of the recommendations algorithm that flowed through gun communities, through traditional GOP communities. And those people were winding up on Proud Boy and Boogaloo Boy spaces. And those, those accounts, those Telegram accounts for proud, the Proud Boys, for example, are some of the biggest influencers in the far right right now. Um, and it's still kind of unclear who exactly in the Proud Boys is running those accounts. Um, so that's an important thing. But there's Q. And Q is a whole different thing. Q has provided a meaning of life for a lot of people here. Um, it's not just traditional Donald Trump fans. Um, it is yoga moms and people in the alternative health community who found it in the same way from the Facebook algorithm, from the Instagram algorithm. Q people were recruiting explicitly in those spaces to try to make it so the algorithm would lead people down in that direction. They would say, you know, hey, do you believe in, you know, ethereal, earthy stuff? Uh, maybe you'll believe in this thing called the event or the shift, which is what QAnon people call the Great Awakening. You know, the one day we're all going to wake up and everything's going to make sense because it turns out the devil was running uh, some sort of gambit through the Democratic Party. Um, and it's become a religion. Um, it, it has, you know, found its way into evangelical uh, churches and their listservs. And they look at Q posts. Q is this anonymous fake insider in the United States government that was saying all of these things that Donald Trump was secretly saving the world. And he would write in like poems, basically, that looked like they, they looked like Bible verses. So people would cite them like Bible verses. They would say like, hey, look, if you look at, if you look at Q4237, he'll say this thing about, you know, that's just a post on the internet that somebody else numbered for him. Um, but they, they cite it like that. They, they cite it like a Bible verse now. So it provides people relief. And like what we were just talking about with belief is what it is. Um, There's this guy named Brian Keeley who works at Pitzer College in, in Los Angeles. And like 20 years ago, 30 years ago now, he wrote, a thesis about conspiracy theories. And he called them, he called like these, these kind of like QAnon style conspiracy theorists, he called them the last believers in an ordered universe, which is what it is. These people have lost a sense of self and they've lost a sense of order. And QAnon or, you know, these, these militia movements that have rules and, and uh, you know, military style belief sets, it gives you order. It gives you a sense that if you wake up tomorrow, there's going to be something in place that you can find your way in. It gives you hope that at the end of the day, this is all going to mean something. Um, and that's what people are finding in Q, and that's what people are finding 
in a lot of these sort of pro-Trump sects. It's so fascinating because you've sort of seen the waning of traditional organized religion. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that generally speaking, a lot of people have retreated before the pandemic. A lot of people have retreated from in-person community to online community. And so it makes so much sense to me the way you just laid it out. I've never really thought of it that way, that as more and more people got more and more online, that their desire to believe hasn't waned at all, but their their interaction with things has gotten more and more online. So it makes sense that they found sort of a religion online, even though it has no real religious tenets, right? Yeah. If anything, it's, it's ramped up, right? People mm. are home and they are, um, you know, we, we, we've talked to so many ex-QAnon followers who followed the same path. They lost a job. They lost a loved one. Um, you know, they lost a big part of their identity during the pandemic. And they had to fill the space. And the thing that was the most immediate thing to fill a space was Instagram or Facebook. Mm. And they would spend their days trying to fill that hole. And like nobody is saying to themselves, well, I have this big hole in my heart for meaning and purpose, <laughs> I have to go fill it up with something. Nobody says that, that's not how it works. They find it themselves. They think they are finding their own answers. Um, and and that's, that's what Instagram and Facebook are great at. They are great at driving you to the most extreme version of any belief. You know, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg went out there, you know, 10 years ago and was like, I'm gonna go find this thing that radicalizes every American. He, you know, he started developing an incredibly good product at marketing people into into what they thought they wanted, you know? And while this is great at making it so I get the exact pair of shoes I want, probably too many of them, um, it also makes it so people are getting the most extreme and specific conspiracy theories they have. So you're not gonna find two people who are the same in the QAnon universe. You're not gonna find the same two Trump fans. Um, and that's why you saw that disparate group of people at the Capitol on the 6th. Mm. You saw the Q shaman who, you know, everyone looks at that guy and says, what a ridiculous person. But you also saw an Oath Keeper, a couple of them, wearing earpieces who genuinely want to storm the Capitol and kill lawmakers. Right. Um, and that's, that's the problem, is that you can get those people into one group, and then you can get the Q shaman who's there literally by himself, who has his own belief set. And we are having a problem now, I think, in the media disentangling those things because most hilarious image is the thing that's going to persevere. But a very dangerous thing did happen and a worse thing could have happened that day. Explain to me the difference between these two different things. Just, let's, just, let's just drill down on it. So you have people who are through Facebook or Instagram or whatever platform they're on, they are led down a rabbit hole by these algorithms. And they're led there for different reasons, for different ways, but they end up getting to the same place. Is that right? I mean, sometimes I, I think that we can't, I, I want to blame the algorithm for everything. Um, and I think that it has done a lot of terrible, like it took every crazy person that would have been on a soapbox in your town square and connected all of them. Um, and so like that, that is not great. But I don't, I think we, we can't, we can't dismiss and we can't lose focus on the fact that bad actors have created networks on these platforms mm. and sort of organically themselves misused the platforms as well to draw attention to dangerous spaces. Now, again, social media let that happen. Right. They didn't, like they could have stopped Pizzagate in 2016. Like they could have just been like, oh, actually, no, we don't think it's cool to put people who work at a pizza shop. Uh, we don't think it's cool to put their lives in danger. And, and why so didn't they just, do that? Why didn't the leaders of these of these platforms in 20 seconds, shut that down. 
I don't think they cared. I don't think it, they thought it was their place. I think that there's this sort of idea that um, a lot of Silicon Valley tech people have believed that, you know, we just provide a place for information and all information should be free and and we're not tipping the scales. We're just allowing it to be out there and good information and, you know, good intention will always trump bad intention and bad information. And we just know that that's not true anymore. We know that there needs to be some sort of curation online um, to protect from, you know, the most dangerous conspiracy theories, especially when you're shoving all these people together and letting them organize and like create events to storm the Capitol. I mean, it just, it's a one-stop, Facebook especially for me is like a one-stop shop of disinformation and organization. Mm. You know, it's so interesting because I talk to people who work uh, pretty high up at these companies all the time and they make that exact arg argument that you just articulated that this is, a free speech issue and this wasn't their intention and they're just catching up to this, but it's, you know, if you, it's a very slippery slope if you start limiting people's speech and they've completely erased the fact that for years they've been making profit off of this too. And I think that you can't separate the fact that it was a money-making proposition for them to let these, the, these things slide as well. I, I also, I don't think you can separate the fact that if you have more money, you get more speech on yes. these platforms, you get more reach. And that's what we've seen over and over. You know, we, we covered this this uh, website called the Epoch Times a couple of years ago, mm. um, and they absolutely pummeled Facebook with pro-Trump ads. They just they were the largest pro-Trump advertiser on Facebook outside of the Trump campaign, and um, they have this enormous reach and fan base and following now. And it's because they did that, right? It's because some form of dark money allowed them to push this stuff on Facebook and YouTube and just saturate the website with this stuff. So. They combined the two toxic elements into this cocktail that work best when trying to build a community on Facebook. Sensational lies that um, play on xenophobia and anger and hatred and money, because you can just you know, get in front of people's spaces by boosting posts over and over again. So is that free speech? Is that really free? It, like, is, that, is that the argument we're having here? Is that you know, the, the people who allow themselves to be besotted in dark money and then push that on Facebook and YouTube those people get to have more of a voice than, you know, a random person in the middle of the country. No, that's not free speech. That is uh, paid for speech. So that's capitalism. Um, that, yeah, exactly. And that, that, that's the frame has always been messed up here. Um, once you started having uh, once money started becoming part of the currency. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. It seems to me as someone who does not spend my life steeped in this, but but is a, a, a 
casual observer of what is happening online. So please tell me if I'm wrong. It seems to me like so much, at least of the actionable conspiracy theories that we see promoted online, that the people who are believing this stuff tend to be people who are on the right. Am I, am I completely off here? It started that way. It started with sort of pro-Trump trolls um, and young and like uh, libertarian, um, you know, uh, 4chan users really, and then moved on to Reddit users. And then, then it moved on to your more generally MAGA types. And that's when it moved on to Facebook. And so then you had your MAGA types and then the pandemic happened. And with the pandemic, like Ben said, everybody was sort of forced inside and afraid and nothing made sense anymore. So something had to be up. Something had to be behind all of this. And that's when they got a lot of the, a researcher calls it Pastelanon. You got the light worker people, you got the more of the evangelicals who saw this sort of coming as a judgment day. Again, I grew up in the evangelical church and a lot of it, it seems like this felt like we were in revelation, right? A lot of people were dying. Everything was scary. Yes. We're talking about marks of the beast with some vaccine. Like it, it just it was like fodder for, for QAnon to grow and cross fertilize with existing sort of high belief people, whatever those beliefs were being. So it really did. It, it's moved a lot to more of the lefty sphere or mm. spectrum, I would say. The, yeah, the, the primary marker is magical thinking. Mm. Like if you are capable of believing that there is some big order that is capable of being disrupted, then that's what you're gonna believe. And that you don't get that from politics. You get that from various different kinds of belief. Um, and that's, that is a lefty and righty thing. Um, and it's not just an extreme or fringe thing. It can affect all of us. We all have magical thinking. We all think that, you know, you know, we all at least hope that there's some order that it's all going to work out. Um, but if your space gets bastardized by people who are intentionally trying to exploit it, mm. then um, that's how that's how it gets dangerous. That's how um, you can go from thinking, oh, man, something's not right here to thinking something's not right here and we have to stop it. And that's that's where we got like I keep saying a cocktail, but that's what happened here. Like we have this the organizational tools of these websites plus dark money, plus people just preying on the on that sort of fear to try to make a, a living themselves, either through Patreon donations or whatever. And you get that all together and suddenly, um, you know, you're following a group of people who are trying to sell you something that's really bad. You know, it's, it's so interesting because you're presenting the, this thing that was sort of, it is the perfect moment for people to have this kind of influence because they now have the platform, they know how to use the money, they know how to target people. And I think people have always been desperate to believe in things. I, I wrote a story for the magazine earlier this year about a uh, Gwyneth Paltrow shaman who is now dating the princess of Norway. And it's like the perfect combination of Vanity Fair terms in one single story. <laughs> um, but as I was writing and reporting it and, and, um, the guy, if you were to see him do a shamanic readings, is probably not someone who you would necessarily believe to be like actually reading codes in your bones and speaking to your ancestors. I don't, maybe you would, but I, I didn't totally buy it. But I could see how people who are just desperate to believe, hearing someone who has answers or, or is able to explain the inexplainable in your life is so appealing. 
and this is a person who's doing this for a lot of money in person, you have to get an appointment. If this were readily available to people online, I could so see everyone buying it. It just gives people hope. It gives people meaning, gives people understanding. Do you think that we're in a period where people are also particularly more than ever looking for something to believe in? Or is that have, has that always been there? I mean, I'm a big fan of Kurt Anderson's fantasy land and I've been <laughs> rereading that now. So, I mean, I think that again, you know, we've all, magical thinking and rumors and, you know, grifters have always been around um, since, you know, the beginning of, uh, of our country. And I, I think that that's nothing new, but again, I, I we just can't overstate the, the fear of and the you know desperation that's been the pandemic. So I, people are definitely looking for just answers, and you know we've always sort of looked to the heavens for those answers. I think people are just increasingly turning um, online instead. Yeah, and I also think that you know the guy at the top of the government for the last four years um, made it so. All he did was say, nothing is true, nothing is real, absolutely nothing is real, mm. nothing that you hear is real. And the moderate position for that is, I don't know, maybe the media is sometimes, maybe the media is wrong 50% of the time, right? That's the moderate position sure. if you were to move the Overton window over there. So I feel like most people, you know, there are some people who have completely blank slated the media and said that everything they say is incorrect. And then there are people in the middle who are your friends and family and you talk to them all the time who, uh, you know, you're a journalist, I'm sure that they have talked to you and uh, explained to you what's wrong with the media every time you've talked to them. Big time. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so they they have um, decided that half the things the media says is wrong just because they want to be the normal person. Yep. They want to be the moderate in between, you know, some rabid uh, mainstream media fanboy, which I don't even know if that exists anymore, and <laughs> uh, and Donald Trump. And that's, that's what that is. And, you know, the other thing that they do is they take advantage, bad faith actors take advantage of what's known as a, as, as an, it's known as an information vacuum. Mm. So anytime there is a major event, a, uh, you know, say the protests in the summer or the six, the Capitol in the six, there is a time frame in which nobody really fully knows what's happening. Reporters are out there reporting the story and they have to go back and at least call it in or, you know, they have to go back, write the story. Um, and there are live streamers now, so that sort of helps, but it's, you know, who knows, but in that meantime, you have people who are exclusively devoted to plugging in a boogeyman. So, you know, usually that's like Antifa or something, but there are people who sit around all day long. And, you know, there's a guy in Malaysia who is a bajillion Twitter followers. And over the summer, these, uh, these protests were happening in the middle of the night. They're happening at one in the morning. But that's like, you know, that's, a, that's working hours for him. Sure. So... He was filling in those spaces with like, this is Antifa. This is, you know, who did this? Like, why are people on this roof? Um, all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, the mainstream media can't catch up to that. They're asleep. If it's on the weekend, they're at the park. Mm. So, um, you know, where you have this blank slate where nothing is true. And the first people who come into these major uh, political events are liars and people trying to push a narrative. Then afterwards, you know, when, once the truth comes out, you have you have the moderate position is somewhere between an obvious and distinct lie and uh, a truth that's just trying to catch up to that lie. Mm. There's also the disinformation, like, or the information literacy gap that like, you know, I think a lot of our parents are starting to, you know, especially this year and the last couple of years have become very much more online and 
don't necessarily have the um, knowledge to decipher what is really a junk news website and what's a fake local news website and what's a reliable source. And, you know, it's not because they're stupid, but it's because I think that those of us who were sort of raised on the internet just have a different understanding of all of the ways that people have used that um, to, to trick us and, and to sort of falsify information. And I, I just, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, a lot of people talk about like, oh, we need high school digital literacy and like, sure. But what would be probably a lot more helpful is some sort of initiative that would catch, you know, people like my parents and maybe yours. Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And it's not, it, it's definitely online literacy, but I also think it's media literacy too. I remember uh, around the election, a friend of mine came to me and said, I'm trying to explain this. Can you help me? I'm trying to explain to my mom how she can trust a news source and how she could not trust a news source. What it, What are the, the key things that she needs to look for in a story to know that something is not fake news? And it made me stop in my tracks and I was like, oh, this is something I don't, I literally don't even think about when I'm reading a story. And and I'm obviously doing it at a different level than this person's mom is. But it is so important to have these signposts so that people are going to be able to figure this out in the future. This is going to be the central thing that we keep bumping up against. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is here because we're not going to have flags on every story that comes up online. We're not going to be able to necessarily re-educate the vast majority of the population into thinking, you know, these are ways that you can trust something. These are the flags. And I don't, I don't know how you go about solving for this. Yeah, I don't know either. But I think that um, we always say, like, if, if your pulse is raised to, to an unbelievable extent by reading a story, you know, take a step back and be like, is this really... <laughs> It's really a thing. That's a um, very it, good, uh, good uh, sign. Yeah, you need a pulse oximeter for exclusively for <laughs> reading the news. Um, so I like. I think that's that's part of it. Is that like like Brandy said, there there is a novelty to YouTube that if you've never seen it before and it's just filled with mountains of answers, uh, they aren't right. They're, they're they're wrong. They're not right. But they say like the truth about um, if somebody is providing an absolute truth about something. I think that that is a that's a pretty good marker for somebody who is uh, talking out of their ass. Can, think, we, can we talk about YouTube for um, a second? Yeah, sure. Now that Absolutely. you bring that up, I've, I wanted to ask you about this. YouTube is a place where so much has been fostered and so much dis disinformation has been spread. And it hasn't gotten the kind of attention that a Facebook has. Why aren't they being held more responsible for their part in this disinformation spread? Man, it's so bad. It's... <laughs> I. Well, that, the answer is easy. And it's because they don't provide a single tool for transparency. Mm. They are a black box. They um, they just work completely in the dark and they actively try to stop journalists from learning anything about their platform or how people are radicalized on it. Mm. In terms of like Facebook groups, um, you know, they have CrowdTangle, which is a Facebook-owned tool that um, lets us see a little bit under the hood and lets us make some certain connections and see how far things have spread and in what sometimes what communities they've spread. Twitter is also a lot more open about their platform and provides data to researchers. Um, there are many tools that allow, you know, a, a regular researcher like me to download and, you know, analyze tweets. YouTube has none of that. And it's it's terrible because 
in terms of what has radicalized people, especially for QAnon, it is absolutely YouTube videos. It's that is how you see in all the groups, they red pill people. Just watch, watch Follow the Cabal, this really bad one. You know, what, there, there are tons of videos just like it. Um, it's, it's, it's just a shame. Yeah, it, it, they, they use on YouTube, QAnon influencers specifically use the sort of things that would happen in a Hollywood movie. It's a, it's like the Da Vinci Code or whatever, or National Treasure, yeah. where there's a clear arc, um, has spooky music, really scary sounding stuff, and a good guy, right? At the end, there's like this big, the, the lens flares on Donald Trump. It's so beautiful. Like there's like this, <laughs> like there's a man saving the day. And uh, it's so, uh, it's over the top, to, I, I would say, to most people. But if you've never seen anything like this before, it's just another movie at a time when, you know, there isn't a lot of stuff coming out. Can't go to the movies anymore. Um, there, there is no monoculture. So, you know, if you were into the Da Vinci Code and you had to talk about, and you had that book club to talk with people about stuff, it's gone. Um, this is a, it's just the replacement. The replacement is demonization of one political party. So um, it's, it's entertainment for these people and it, it works really well on YouTube. And like Brandy said, there's literally no oversight. Hearing that is so terrifying to think about. I'm wondering what you guys have seen post January 6th and and now post-inauguration, obviously we saw some of these platforms take action that they had not taken over the last four years. Uh, Donald Trump is basically deplatformed. Uh, a lot of the tech companies have, or social media networks have said, um, we're not going to allow X kind of communication or Y kind of communication. Has it made a difference? Have new places for people to spread these kinds of things popped up. What, what have you witnessed as experts in this field since, since January 6th and inauguration? I think, um, I think we're all retooling at this point. Bad actors and journalists who cover this space are all sort of in a, a bit of a holding pattern to try to find out what's going to happen next. I think what we can say is, that yeah, January 6th happened and suddenly everybody said, whoa, online can be dangerous. Online, people who say they're going to do terrible things online, sometimes they do those things and we don't want that to happen. So let's let's get all this scary stuff off the platform. But the problem with that is that for years, they've been allowed to build up these communities. For the last year, every one of the major influencers from QAnon to anti-vax has been, has had a header on their profile saying, follow me here. I'm going to be banned any mm. day. Now. Join my newsletter and email list to text me your phone number. So I have it. And I've done that a lot. So I'm on a million terrible newsletter lists now. And it's not just the fact that you take the influencers away. Because what happens when you've radicalized millions of people on a platform to believe things that are completely false, including that, you know, democracy and, and our, our way of um, voting and our elections are all fake. And then you take away, you know, some of the, the influencers in that community. Those people still believe that. They're still connected in groups that aren't explicitly QAnon, but are, you know, lightworkers group. So these people are all sort of still connected. And while some of them may flee to Telegram and and whatever, I, I just feel like the damage has been done. And we're going to see that play out in ways that aren't as obvious as they were in 2020, because we can't track them as easily. But they're still there. Oh, my God. What a terrifying proposition. Brandy, you just, you just brought up something that I want to ask you guys about quickly. 
you are so you guys are both so steeped in this and you are on all these newsletters and I'm sure you're texting all these people and to be a good reporter in this space I'm sure you guys have to open yourselves up to so many people online and and be available to so many people uh, and I know how taxing that could be as a reporter you guys have also gotten a lot of criticism from people. You know, obviously, I'm sure you guys talk to um, a lot of individual people who uh, may or may not be scary. But but Tucker Carlson has come for some of your reporting earlier. Isn't that right? <laughs> uh, I saw earlier this week, uh, Glenn Greenwald mentioned you in a newsletter, basically calling you guys like hall monitors who are tattletales in the class. All of us who put ourselves out there and are doing the work face criticism from other reporters, from from other sides of the aisle, whatever it is. Just talk to me about what that is like personally for people who are, you know, spending so much of their time in these communities to be the target for something like a, a Tucker Carlson rant. Ben? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get you. I, look, part of the deal here is that we've been in this space for so long that, um, a lot of bad guys think that we ruined their game. And uh, I think in a lot of cases, maybe we did. And that's okay. And uh, it's really difficult. We get a lot of very bad stuff. And it's, it's hard to call on your mom and saying that phone call was somebody scary. The phone call to my mom. It's a difficult thing. And, uh, you know, I will say it, it is a, it's an increasingly difficult line to toe because you know you can you can talk to these people and say hey everything you're saying is wrong you know clearly like you didn't read this story you're getting information from a group of people who we reported on who are now very angry at us and you can do that um, but then that reignites that fire and that's how the internet works the internet the internet is a vengeance machine it gives people a reason to wake up that is to get back at your enemy. And that's, that's okay. Um, that's what we cover. We try to tell people that the internet is a vengeance machine and it gives people a reason to wake up to get back at your enemy. Uh, but when you do that uh, and you, you, you lay bare the, um, the incentive structures for this, which is mostly money, but also identity and you know, political power, when you lay that bare, people are gonna get angry. Um, and we understand that. Um, it, it doesn't make it any easier to get those threats, to get the stuff on the phone that you thought was, that they didn't know about, the one that you would text your family with, and then you have to get a new one. It doesn't make it any easier. Mm. But, um, but I'm not doing this job for the day-to-day. -day. I'm doing it to look back and be like, okay, you know, I think when everybody else is trying to cover the crazy things people said and um, trying to treat the symptom, um, we were trying to uncover why the disease exists. Mm. And we can look back and say, um, uh, you know, maybe we, maybe we helped eradicate some of it. I just want to add, like, I'm not mad at, you know, the tens of whatever texts and calls and mean emails I get every day. And um, because most of those people believe something. They believe that they're right. They think that um, the government and the media are really sort of collaborating in this way to get them and big tech. And they've just been sold this 
incredible amount of fear from really a handful of grifters. Some of those grifters are selling QAnon books for $15 a pop. Some of them have, you know, flagship shows on um, Fox News. But like what, you know, Tucker Carlson just had a, last night, just this crazy segment about like not trusting the vaccine. And then, you know, I, these people, they believe that. And so, like Ben was saying, we, we are their enemies because people that make a ton of money saying that we are um, face no consequences, whether that's Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson. So mm. I don't know. It's sad. I'm glad I have Ben. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I have Brandy too. It'd be really hard to do it without her. But, you know, that, that, that's what Brandy said is right. Nobody, nobody, well, some people do, but not a lot of these people think they're the bad guy. Um they think that they are saving people. The people mm. at the top, the grifters, I'm sure that they have other things that they're selling or doing, and they, they don't really mind if they're the bad guy for a few minutes. But most of the people who are emailing us, um, you know, they were just told by a guy on TV that we're the enemy and we need to be stopped. So um, I, I understand. It, it's I an incredibly compassionate way to look at people who are being hateful towards you. And I think the fact that you guys look at this with such humanity and are looking really at the root of this and looking at who these people are and why they're motivated to do what they do makes you guys such good reporters. I think that also, uh, I can only speak for myself, but I can kind of hear it in what you're saying is that as much hate as, as we get for doing our jobs, at the end of the day, I go to sleep and I know that I, I did my best to do the right thing. And I feel like at the end of my day, I feel like I will be on the right side of history and it gives me a lot of peace. And I hope you guys feel that too, because I undeniably think that you guys are on the right side of history here and you guys should be really proud of the work you've done and will continue to do. And I want to let you guys get back to that work because I could talk to you all day, but I, I like actually want your reporting, but I'm going to ask you one last question. What should we as readers, as watchers, as listeners be paying attention to as we enter this next phase in our political life as as the internet continues to evolve? What are you guys focused on and what should we be focused on too? Well, I want to, I, I think that we, we can't forget what happened on the 6th. I think that there is a, a, a dream and a wish that we all share just to say, oh my God, our long national nightmare is over. Um, but it's, it's not because there are still um, very organized groups, militias in states in every single state um, organizing for the next thing. They're still angry. People uh, still very much believe in QAnon and this idea of a judgment day. And there are, I think the feeling from people that I speak to in this space, disinformation researchers and um, people who've researched extremist movements is that now that we're past this period where they have political power. They're in a moment where they're sort of regrouping and they're doing that out of sight. I I mean, I hate to think like this, but the idea that people are concerned about is that there could be organizing for a, a domestic terror situation. And I think that law enforcement and we all have to prepare somehow for that. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, just like Brandy said, I think that there's going to be this campaign to make it so the sixth did not happen, um, and it did. It definitely happened in the way that we thought it would. And there are going to be people who said that 
these were not Donald Trump fans, that these are unserious people because of how some of them were dressed and how, them, how they talked and how unorganized some of them were. Um, but it was real. And um, it's not always going to come out in this elaborate, showy, almost campy way that it did on the 6th. It's going to come out in just domestic terror attacks, but it's also going to come out you know, very simply in ways that are unseen. Um, there are people who do not wear a mask because they're told they're muzzles and um, they're slaves to the state if they wear a mask. And they heard that on YouTube. And uh, those people are dying. Like, we've talked to family members of, of these people. They are furious that they were told a lie and they don't have a grandfather anymore for their kids. Um, it's not all one-to-one. -one. It's not all president says thing and they go to Capitol and they, you know, and then insurrection. Um, it's not all that. Um, it is a lot of times transitive and a lot of times it's done to cause more havoc through a series of steps. And you're going to see that more as, you know, vaccine hesitancy, you know, keeps coming up and life may not open up as fast as possible because of it. Um, this has real life impacts that aren't just um, insurrection. I am terrified and new, but I am really grateful that we have both of you covering this for us and explaining this to us along the way. And I have no doubt in my mind that as things continue to unfold, you will be the great explainers of everything. And having your watchful eyes on things makes me feel a little bit better about everything. And I'm so happy and grateful that you guys took the time this morning to come and, and be here and explain all this to us. So thank you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Emily. Thank you to our guests, Brandy Zadrozny and Ben Collins, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to Brett Fuchs and the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you next week. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.